Hi, this is Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. This tune is called The Walk, and it's by Splitface. Today's episode is about computational pipelines, mainly ones in the biomedical sciences. Pipelines are basically a series of steps. Algorithms are linked to one another. The output of one algorithm is the input to another. Pipelines can be simple and pretty complex, and maintenance of pipelines also ranges from simple to complex. I recently did a story in Nature Methods on computational pipelines. It's called When Computational Pipelines Go Clank. And I spoke to a bundle of people about pipeline building and maintenance. And I sat down, virtually that is, with two scientists at DNA Nexus. DNA Nexus is a company that helps research consortia, academic medical centers, and companies build and maintain pipelines. Some projects DNA Nexus has worked on include the St. Jude Cloud, that's a cloud at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, or ENCODE, the UK Biobank, and the Vertebrate Genomes Project. The two scientists I spoke with are John Ellithorpe, who is DNA Nexus Executive Vice President and Chief Product Officer, and George Asimenos, Chief Technology Officer at DNA Nexus. Pipelines came about when labs large and small began stringing algorithms together and when scientists wanted to make their pipelines portable and share them with others. Here's John Ellithorpe talking about breaking down an analysis into computational chunks. And I should say, John was outside when he spoke with me, and I think it was a cricket that was kind of commenting along with him part of the way. I hope you don't mind. Here's John Ellithorpe. Bye breaking it down so that at some level you could then uh, put them uh, together, different uh, uh, different algorithms could be put together in a useful way. Uh, that allowed, um, that made it a little bit easier for people to be able to consume and be able to optimize the types of analysis that they want. Because a lot of people may be using the, the same upstream uh, mapping step, but then have their uh, specific uh, needs for the uh, for the variant calling, where you might you know might be optimizing for indels or might be optimizing for uh, uh, SNPs and things. So it, I think that it was an important construct to be able to understand how to how to make that work. Another implicit aspect of pipeline is that the data format and the data is actually flowing through them. Right? You can't have that unless you understand what da- what data comes out and you can feed it into the next step of the pipeline. That was also uh, uh, particularly important. Um, and so that's evolved in the genomic space, that's evolved quite a quite a bit. So there's a lot of these called de facto standards about what things look like as you go through. Obviously they're they're not everything's perfect and their challenges mi- mixing and matching. Uh, but that I think by and large has, has settled to de facto standards to make it easier to to reuse. Um, but the other part um, especially when you think of moving to the cloud, if you're in an HPC environment, then you really have the same machines and hardware, and you, you know the optimization looks a little bit different. In a cloud environment, um, it's interesting because uh, you could then not just optimize um, for scientific value, you can optimize for uh, cost, because then you can say, I'm going to take this one step, I'm going to run it on this type of machine that really optimizes the mix of storage and uh, memory and things like that. Um, separately from this other step that might be bigger and might need a more, more memory, therefore it's a much more expensive instance. Uh, but I can then optimize the pipeline for, for that. So, so there are multiple reasons that, that pipelines are, 
uh, are very popular these days. Pipelines have been around for a while. They are the steps of scientific analysis rendered computationally. This is George Asimenos, Chief Technology Officer at DNA Nexus. If you go to typical scientific papers and go to the method section, they all say, first we did this, then we did that, then we did that. No one has a, a specific one tool that goes from beginning to end. What I think actually happened and we witnessed is that there was an idea about making these pipelines more uh, structured, more uh, easy to describe, more portable. Therefore, they needed uh, some idea of where does the step begin, where does it end, what does it take as input as input. So uh, we saw the emergence of maybe workflow description languages and other ways that you can specify What's your pipeline? What does it do? How can someone else run it? Uh, and things like that. So they uh, became, I think, more popular uh, also through the channel, through that medium of portability and machine understanding, not just a paragraph in a paper anymore. A lot of factors are leading to more and more computational pipelines in biomedicine. Here's how John Ellithorpe sees the ongoing changes. I think the, the, the sizes of data is also driving this, so the, the extent of processing. Because, you know, if something takes you know 35 seconds and you go through eight steps, I, the, the reasons to break it up into a pipeline are, are very hard. Just rerun the whole thing; it doesn't matter. Um, and so, a lot of, uh, but you know, if you go into things that are multi-hour uh, processes and you really have to think about the different steps, and and uh, I think that leads you more to like. Uh, working on them a lot, a lot harder and really thinking about the structure. Labs work on pipelines in many different contexts. Many build pipelines on their own. They might choose open source platforms such as Galaxy, and there are others. Sometimes teams turn to DNA Nexus when they're ready, as it's called, to rev their pipeline. John Ellithorpe explains. What usually happens is that they've, they've got a pipeline, they start running it for a while, and then they you know, uh, luckily have the problem that they're scaling up and they're, they're having to do this many, many times. Um, and then you get into um, the challenges of really maintaining and uh, scaling up and having reliable runs so that you can feel confident of the accuracy, you can feel confident of the reproducibility uh, of that pipeline. And also you're faced with the challenge of now you've got to actually rev the pipeline. So like have, you know, continue to improve that pipeline and understanding how you can do that in a, in a reliable way while you have a production system that's churning through uh, these, uh, these pipelines that, can't, that uh, uh, can't have problems with them. And so uh, within that context, I think that uh, we see some of our customers really look at understanding um, first how to control that, uh, that production pipeline and that's where you know you have to have an environment that you can completely lock down. You have to be able to ensure that the the code isn't changing, that the um, uh, that any third uh, third party data like reference data and other things aren't changing. Like that's a that's a uh, quite a controlled environment. Uh, and then the parameters that you're using to run are, are not changing. And so uh, uh, it's critically important to have. Some notions of lockdown in our platform, we use versioning, so a heavy versioning scheme. So by once you version something, it, it goes. And then you can start thinking about how to how to change it. Um, and when you think about changing it, um, we have customers that uh, 
that a lot of times what they're changing is the downstream steps. If you take a diagnostic customer, you know, the mapping is quite similar and put, but a big chunk of the pipeline and, and such. What you're really doing is tweaking the downstream step where you might be uh, trying to alter your algorithm to uh, improve sensitivity or things like that. Um, but you, so what you really want to do is you want to run it against a chunk of sample or a number of samples that you've had before and, and compare them to what you had before. Uh, and but to make it efficient, then you'd really want to be able to only tweak the the part that uh, that you want and not have to rerun the whole pipeline. And so we have notions of uh, of smart reuse to be able to uh, reuse the results of the earlier stages of the pipeline if none of the apps change if you're using the same version, uh, but only then alter the the downstream uh, pieces. But I think those are like, that's just one technique, but really understanding how you can leverage the corpus of data that you might have um, and then tune to the, the changes uh, that you see. If you're looking at a whole new pipeline, the likelihood is you're gonna go through a lot of work to, to check every single step to, to make, it, uh, make it through. But you're probably a lot more often gonna go and be tweaking something that you already knew. And that's where you wanna make it efficient and make sure you don't have to you don't want to waste time revalidating the things that you already done them for. Some teams are ready to lock down a pipeline, but there are plenty of teams who are tweaking, futzing, maybe with parameters, maybe swapping out tools or changing a pipeline in a more fundamental way. In this sense, there are different classes of users that the company sees. John Ellithorpe explains. You've got some some users that at some level don't really care about the pipeline itself, but they just need an answer. And so, you know, if they're just running a GATK pipeline or something, like that's good enough for them. And so uh, I think that there's one class of user. You have a, you, you, then you have the other class of user that might be a lot more on the research side, but they're really trying to optimize something out of a pipeline. Um, and so uh, maybe not every step of the pipeline, but you're gonna have, maybe parts of the pipeline, they're really digging in and trying to fundamentally understand what's happening um, with a particular tool or method. Um, and so they're going to be incredibly interested in that. And that, you know, at some level, you know, that is a logical scientific process, not an engineering process, right? And so you're going to still have to go through normal scientific practices of, you know, controlled test environments and, and tweaking to be able to, to understand that. I think that, uh, you know, what we see is, you know, uh, uh, and then I'll have the third class of people that are just, they are people who just focus on methods. They're not trying to get a specific answer, but, you know, you've got people who build these tools and, and they focus on, uh, like, building the, like, Heng Lee doing the BWA NAM, right? That's what he does. He's trying to make the, the best aligner in the world um, uh, to be able to uh, work the best. So... I think you have to look at the different populations and say, like, what, like, what pop, like population are you? Um, and I would say that if you look at um, researchers, I think researchers are kind of mostly in the middle um, that uh, uh, that tend to are trying to do something novel and new. Um, and then you have sort of practitioners who are trying to get stuff done on the uh, on the other side. It's tempting and typical to keep tweaking pipelines, but researchers will want to be mindful about when to do that tweaking and when not to do that tweaking. Like you can't change too many things, otherwise you're not going to know what's going on. Um, it's it's more um, about making sure you do it in a controlled way and in an efficient way. 
so that you can get through what you need to do and really understand what you're doing. On the subject of changing pipelines, George Asimeno says there are a few situations where you cannot or don't want to change a pipeline. Sometimes these changes cannot be made so easily. So uh, that's uh, some class of users have that limitation. And the others are you accumulating a lot of data that need to be processed in a uniform way so that you can combine and compare or do something uh, that compares apples to apples and you've already done some samples and you don't want to change your pipeline in the middle because that requires that you go back and reanalyze everything. So those that produce a lot of data and there's quite a few of these projects that operate at sort of population scales have that inertia of not being able to change even though they're not regulated because uh, it is an overhead of having uh, to recompute things so that they are homogeneously uh, processed. And George Asimenos has some examples when a pipeline needed to be changed even when nobody really wanted that to happen. ENCODE has definitely done that, and that was part of the pilot project, and huh. even in that tiny bit, we were faced with uh, this problem of versioning, uh, even between the labs. Uh, the human genome changed uh, versions while we were doing it and whatnot. Uh, um, other examples I would say are um, Regeneron Genetic Center, they've uh, processed the UK Biobank uh, exomes and they have uh, one version of the pipeline and it had to, I think, uh, change and in a way that the community um, uh, is uh, aware of it, right? So the, the, um, there was a change in instruments uh, earlier on and that affected the pipeline. And, and so it was uh, something that uh, needs to be also taken into account for those that embark on the large endeavor and have to make sure that whatever they do today is relevant uh, years from today. DNA Nexus works with St. Jude. John Ellithorpe talks about the St. Jude cloud and set up with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. St. Jude part was actually two different facets. So one part was the St. Jude cloud, which they are, um, as a premier pediatric cancer facility, uh, they want to improve uh, pediatric cancer around the world. And so they're taking their, uh, their genome data sets as well as um, associated other clinical information and then publishing it out um, through the St. Jude Cloud as a way to share and uh, and provide a data set that other people in the, in the world can use. There are other parts of that where um, St. Jude users can also uh, come to the platform and then be able to bring whatever tools they want or use some of the tools. Uh, St. Jude Cloud has some interesting, uh, especially visualization tools uh, that are available there. And they can they can then uh, bring their own data and, uh, and then use it. So it's both for the data sharing and, and uh, open research uh, view, as well as uh, providing a platform to support people to come on board and uh, perform their analysis. An important aspect of pipelines are workflow managers, and there are many types of them. John Ellithorpe talks about a few of them. The workflows is an interesting area. To me, it's a little bit like, you know, code editors. Everybody's got their favorite. And so, and they'll go into ferocious troll wars on the internet about which one is better. But the, I, I think, you know, ultimately, I, I don't think there's a huge difference between like one workflow language versus another. You might have smaller uh, reasons why one may be um, 
can support a little type of use case or maybe it's a little bit more readable than the other. But I, I suspect that ultimately you can do what you need to do in most workflow languages. Um, and in, you know, and unfortunately, it seems to be a highly fragmented space uh, there. I think we last counted and there might be a hundred different workflow languages that are out there. Um, in our world, uh, so we have, um, I think we started, uh, George started this company a long time ago. Now we're over 10 years. And at that point, there weren't really uh, like anything that was like standard. And so we have our own internal uh, orchestration language that we use. Um, but we layer on and allow you to uh, bring on uh, Whittle, um, like WDL or CWL into our platform um, to be able to better support at least the ones that we see our customers being more interested in. Um, I think the uh, there are other ones we've heard of SnakeSnake. We see people are interested in NextFlow. I think those are probably the next ones uh, down. I think that uh, like uh, in terms of um, like it, it really only matters uh, a lot if you have a population of things already built. Um, and then, because uh, uh, then it, it's harder to switch if, you, uh, uh, if you've already made a significant investment of one or the other. But what we've seen is like, I suspect over half of our customers don't, uh, don't care. They, they actually look more towards the, like all the capabilities of the environment they're in and uh, and then look at and say that okay well I want all those capabilities therefore you support this type of workflow language let me use that it's I think it tends to be more that as opposed to um, I'm gonna I'm gonna find the the one that has you know Whittle or CWL and only pick that one. Sorry, I, I was just gonna say that uh, there are sometimes these are two different things and sometimes they're the same. One is the workflow definition language or how do you describe a workflow in, in what language or in what framework? And the other is the workflow execution framework. So in some of these um, specifications like CWL or WDL, they are um, somewhat independent. So you can write a workflow in WDL and then you can take that workflow specification and write a system that takes it as input, understands what it is, and then uh, runs it. Uh, if for something else, like uh, I think SnakeMake is a little bit more combined, meaning you uh, use SnakeMake to both um, uh, write it and run it. Now, it can leverage the cloud or your local cluster or whatnot, but it is the execution engine to some extent for orchestrating it. And so for for some of the, the things that are less uh, decomposed, it might... Um, have some implications in terms of how you can interface with different systems or uh, you know what is the level of portability that you may expect that that's not pros and cons but rather you know what we've witnessed in the biomedical sciences many labs are becoming big data analysis environments or they already are that this trend affects many aspects of research john ellathorpe says i think this is an interesting space we're in because the the velocity of change is very high. And I think the velocity of change is increasing. I think it's important um, because that's that's the pace of science and that's the pace of innovation that's, ha that's happening and needs to get maintained and continue. And so, you know, on the one hand, you'd want people like who are like more engineering focused to slow down, you know, lock it down, document everything, 
you know, make sure everything works before you release it out. On the other hand, you have people like who are innovating and trying to get the latest innovations out so people can use it as fast as possible. And those two worlds don't mix particularly well. And so we're in the middle and we're trying to like provide an environment where you can adopt as many of these things as you can and go and allow the users to go at their pace, right? So we have, you know, if they're more standardized tools and they, they want to go four versions back, they can go four versions back and just use that. Or, or if they want to stay on the bleeding edge, they can, you know, they can download something from Git, you know, compile it, upload it onto our platform and use it, you know, the next hour. So those things I think we have to allow for because the, uh, uh, because it's, it's just the, the world that we're in. One thing that can happen with pipelines, and it's a tough day when it does, pipelines can break. One reason why pipelines can break is that dependencies are missing, bits of software that a tool will need to run well. Here's George Asimenos. I think there are two kinds of dependencies. One is interdependencies within the pipeline. So this step depends on a preview step or the input to this step. It needs to be the output of these other steps. So all those kinds of things are uh, sort of usually data-driven dependencies and, and all the languages have a way to specify them. Then I think there's dependencies in terms of what is the environment where something will run, what software packages are required, what needs to be installed. And again, most of the uh, workflow languages depend on uh, the author of a workflow packaging everything into a single container or some other sort of image of an operating system that then becomes a little bit more portable. And so it is something that becomes better in the sense of uh, if you are an author, you solve it for your users and then you package it in your uh, workflow. Still, of course, as an author of a pipeline, how do you build all of your dependencies and package them and put them into one container uh, that has become better over the years, but that still comes with some caveats uh, in terms of you know, how do people try and understand what exact versions they're using and what are the implications of do you download something or do you compile it from the source code or do you um, um, use something else? So um, there's, there's, I think, some room for improvement there. As biomedical research changes, so too will computational pipelines. Different kinds of algorithms emerge and different software tools. And of course, there are different analysis needs. Here are some of the trends that John Ellithorpe and George Asimenos see. I'll say that there are two, two sort of things I see. So one is, I think, sort of what you mentioned. If you look at the field, like, you know, over, you know, it, in the previous years, people tended to be divided by the types of, of uh, experiments they would do. You have genomic experiments, you have, uh, you know, proteomic ones, and, and those teams are very separate and they kind of do their own research and stuff. Um, and there's clearly a realization that you need to pull those things together and really do cross-omic analysis. Um, but that's hard. And really understanding how you pull in the data uh, where you might have um, a lot of these pipelines you can think of as getting the data ready to before you actually try and do the association and correlation work like across the different data sets. And so, um, so I think starting to understand how you pull that together, and there's a larger architectural issue, even 
at the size scale of companies to like, how do you organize your teams? How do you organize the environment so you can actually pull them in and do that without a lot of, you know, people with different machines and copying data here and there, all that kind of stuff. So I think that, that more and more we're going to see these uh, uh, groups really start pulling these things together and really understand, like, how do I actually not have to relearn my environment to just deal with this pipeline or that pipeline? I, I think I see that that being a strong thing that's coming. The other strong thing I think that's coming is that a lot of the, the people in this world are like came from the science side. And so... Um, and more and more software is actually going to, is being brought in and not software in terms of actual code, but the software in terms of practices and understanding how you actually maintain large corpuses of code that you have to maintain and build on and do it in a reliable way. And so you start hearing much more about people who do continuous development, continuous integration pipelines, uh, understanding how to actually version, how you have test staging, production environment, like all these notions which have been there for years and years in the software world are now being filtered in and uh, and uh, those type of uh, processes and, and ways to think about doing things uh, are, are going to really significantly hit. So that people really understand like, okay, I don't have to worry about this stuff because if I set up these frameworks, then I can just worry about my pieces, but I know that tests will happen. I know that I'll get things to production without uh, worry. Uh, so I think that that's another big change that's happening. And I should mention that the uh, third change. I think the, the third major change is that um, people are going to, like all these things are going to end up feeding major data science environments. These are all just feeder processes into uh, thinking about data science um, all the way from, you know, simple association and correlations if you have smaller sets of data um, into, you know, the magic of ML and AI when we get there. So I think that, but nobody wants to have a, a mismatch between the data that they have and what they're generating and, and providing it to those environments. And so I see that sort of these are sort of major waves that are happening in, in the space to really drive to uh, moving to that, being able to do more that insight analysis and, and let be less focused at the you know data pre-processing and things like that. George, I don't know if you have thoughts. No, that's great. I would overlay that the resources that people have become higher every year. Compute is getting more ubiquitous and um, less expensive, and the data is getting larger. Uh, resources like UK Biobank bring uh, even more um, data and, and create uh, new frontiers in what people can do. So the combination of the two, I think, disrupts uh, ever so slightly the paradigm of I'm using one tool and it's running for a specific amount of time. That's all I can afford. And I'm using it on my dinky data set. Um, so we should expect to see more of that change in the future. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today with John Ellithorpe, who is DNA Nexus Executive Vice President and Chief Product Officer, and George Asimenos, Chief Technology Officer at DNA Nexus. This music is The Walk by a band called Split Face. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>